Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Abhijit Chavda podcast. And today, as you all know, our guest is a very special author. It is Mr. Chandrachur Ghosh, who is the author of a very interesting new book, Bose, the Untold Story of an Inconvenient Nationalist. He's also author of many other books, including Kanandram with Anuj Dar. So, Chandrachur, welcome to the podcast. It's great to finally get to talk to you. Thank you, Abhijit. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on your show. It's, a, it's an honor, actually. I mean, your show is so popular and so well received. It's it's a it's a great feeling to be talking to your audience. Thank you so much. It's the honor is all mine to have you with me today. So let's talk about the new book. It was released in February. Uh, so right. when I I heard about the fact that you're releasing this new book from Anujdar, which whom I've spoken to a couple of times on this podcast. So the first thing that came to my mind is why. Are you writing a new book? Because there are lots of other books that have been written about biographies about Subhash Bose. So is, were there some issues that were missing in those biographies or were there some gaps that you would that you have filled in this book? So what is the what is what was the need to write a new book? What motivated you to do that? Well, uh, you see, uh, history, I mean, I'm not a historian. I'm not def definitely not a professional historian. So what happens is uh, history is a progressive thing, is a, a progressive subject. As and when new information keep coming in, and uh, it, it keeps getting added to the body of knowledge, to the body of information. But uh, and Suhas Bose's first biography, uh, most probably was published in 1926 or 27, when uh, he was just 30 years old. It was written by one of his friends, and uh, when he was in uh, Mandalay Jail at that time. So from that time till now, a lot of biographies have been written, as you correctly pointed out. And uh, what happens is uh, the first major biography from, uh, I won't say an objective perspective, but uh, from definitely from somebody who had nothing to do with Subhash Bose's uh, politics or his career uh, was written in, uh, was published in 1959 by a a uh, British intelligence agent uh, called Hugh Toy. And Hugh Toy had been chasing uh, Subhash Bose after his mysterious disappearance. And uh, while writing, kind of, uh, it, it came out, it, it was very clear from his writing that he started admiring Bose. And uh, he was uh, very bitterly attacked in the Western press for showing his admiration at certain places. Of course, he was critical also. There were many points on criticism. But uh, overall, there was a very sympathetic and admiring tone, and which was very surprising coming from a British intelligence agent. Now, from that time till, uh, I mean, then we have had uh, biographies uh, like uh, the next major biography came in 1990, which was uh, a combined biography of Subhash Bose and his elder brother, Sarachandra Bose, written by uh, an American uh, scholar called uh, Leonard Gordon. He wrote The Brothers Against the Dutch. Now, uh, after that, uh, there have been, and in between, there have been books uh, uh, like uh, The War of Springing Tigers, Subhash Chandra Bose, uh, and uh, Indian Democracy, and all those kind of, a lot of political, uh, semi-political biographies have been written. And uh, the problem with those biographies was that they were playing around with the same set of information. And uh, there was a style adopted by Hugh Toy in 1959, which was kind of a CV style. So I, I call it the resume style of biography. 
So basically, it focuses on uh, where you were born, what was your education, where you studied, and then what all you did. I'm mean, just in the style that you submit a resume when you apply for a job. You describe yourself uh, in the way possible, and uh, that's that's about it. So uh, Leonard Gordon tried to break out of this uh, narrative a little bit because he did uh, collect a massive amount of information because. Uh, his research spanned 20 to 30 years in Bengal and a lot of primary research. But instead of helping him, that uh, overall lot of information became his bane. So he he could uh, squeeze in a lot of information, but he failed to give the reader a feel of the person that Suhasbos was. And uh, his book was kind of summarized and, uh, and in the new book, uh, later uh, written by Sugato Bose, who is a grand nephew of uh, Netaji. So Sugato Bose is a Harvard pro professor, historian. So some, it was not wrong to expect a better product from him, but it, it, it was nothing more than a summary of uh, Gordon's book with uh, a bit of addition here and there and nothing new. So all these biographies suffered from one simple uh, lacuna. That was that they were very rushed that Suvasbos did this, Suvasbos did that. He fought with Gandhi, he quarreled with Nehru and went to uh, Europe and uh, Southeast Asia, formed two governments, formed an army, fought with this. So packed information and the reader is rushed through as to uh, through the happenings. And there is no space to stop, reflect and uh, actually kind of uh, chew on the facts as to what exactly is happening, what is happening around him, why is Subhasbos behaving like this, what uh, are his sources of uh, ideology, what exactly is he looking at, why is he differing so much from Gandhi and Nehru, and uh, if he's going abroad, taking help, is that good or bad? I mean, there are so many interpretations which have been given on later on. Uh, so. And and these were these were the uh, deficiencies, so to speak. But there was a more serious deficiency, and that was certain aspects of Subhash Bose's activities were completely whitewashed. They were suppressed, brushed under the carpet. So his real feelings towards the Congress Party, towards the Congress leaders, his uh, networking with the revolutionary groups across the country, and. Uh, to uh, a real measure of to what extent he rose as a leader, what was his stature when you compare to uh, compare him to Gandhi or Nehru or Patel, uh, what was his stature? What exactly what was he trying to do uh, with the help of Germany, Italy and Japan? These kind of certain uh, aspects of information for whatever reason uh, were uh, completely brushed under the carpet. And one of the reasons that this was uh, done was uh, shoddy research. Shoddy research in the sense that uh, uh, Bose also runs the Netaji Research Bureau, which also publishes Netaji's collected works. So the collected works of Netaji till now, I think there are out about uh, 12 uh, volumes. And uh, that suffers from such a deficiency. It, it is unbelievable. If you, if you compare the time period, say, from 1921 to 1945, the active life of Subhasbos, 
and uh, if you try to measure their output in terms of letters articles and which are captured basically in the collected works uh, or selected works collected works of Mahatma Gandhi selected works of Jawaharlal Nehru collected works of uh, so if you compare them like these collected works number of pages the number of pages for Gandhiji for this period this 24 25 years 21 to 45 is more than 30,000 pages the number of pages uh, which are which can be found for this period in selected works of Jawaharlal Nehru is more than 10,000 pages in comparison uh, the number of pages for Subhash Bose's collected works is just about uh, 3,000. So it's one-tenth of Gandhi, one-third of Nehru. Now, Subhash Bose certainly didn't write or speak any less than the other two. So there has been some problem in collecting that information. So uh, keeping the entire uh, narrative or information related to Subhash Bose within the grasp of the family has done enormous harm uh, to uh, general awareness about uh, Subhash Bose and about, uh, I mean, uh, a familiarity with his work. So I, I started looking at contemporary newspapers, journals, uh, both Indian and foreign. I started looking at the archives. I started looking at private collections. And a serious amount of information was already existing there. And I was astonished that why professional historians did not take help of these materials. What stopped them? Because that is their uh, uh, forte, that is their bread and butter. That's what they were supposed to do. But there was there was this uh, deficiency in almost all the works. And there was another thing that uh, came up uh, which helped us a lot, which, uh, I mean, we did not really expect this uh, line of development that because of our uh, transparency campaign, our campaign using the uh, Right to Information Act from 2006, a uh, huge amount of files and documents were declassified. The first set of declassification happened in 2010, where more than 10,000 pages, because of my RTI campaign, I fought with the Home Ministry for four years. And as a result, for the first time, uh, responding to a private initiative, the government declassified more than 10,000 pages in 2010. And then that uh, the momentum gathered from there, uh, because from those pages came out that uh, Netaji's associates and family were being snooped upon by the Nehru government at, uh, for the uh, 30 years after independence. So that led to such a, a hue and cry that when the Narendra Modi government came to power, uh, <clears throat> they declassified further 300 files. So all this body of information that came out, they contained valuable information on Netaji. Of course, I mean, most of it was uh, related to his disappearance mystery. But even in those uh, pages, there were a lot of materials which related to his life and work. So it was, uh, it was absolutely necessary to bring this together and see uh, whether we find any new I mean, we, we can see Netaji in a new light if, if we can interpret the man any better. And actually that happened uh, because, I mean, the picture that came out from these pages, from the private collections, from the uh, contemporary uh, journals, newspapers, was a was a much more complete picture of Subhaskos. So we had to kind of document it. That was 
I started the work in 2012, believe it or not, but then had to give it up because uh, our uh, Anuj and my work completely focused on the uh, disappearance mystery and a lot was happening there. So I really didn't get, and I, at that time I was a uh, full-time uh, employee. In a, I, I've been a uh, economic consultant, economic researcher, consultant. I've been an environmentalist. So uh, I, I was fully into that uh, professional mode. And uh, whatever time I used to get, used to take out, uh, I used to focus on the disappearance part. So that idea of writing the biography had to be uh, put on hold for a long time. But then last year, uh, this uh, offer came from Penguin. And uh, I, I, I thought that this is just about time, that this should be written. And, uh, and, and there was also, Abhijit, there was also this criticism from the Bruce family, a section of the Bruce family, that we talk, Anuj and I and Mishan Netaji, we talk only about uh, the death mystery. We sensationalize uh, unnecessary topics and we never bother about <clears throat> the ideas of Netaji, the ideals of Netaji. So we thought the reality was far from that, from that accusation. In fact, we have been talking much more about Netaji than the Bose family, the current generation has done collectively. So uh, that was another a challenge or an accusation that we had to respond to. So this book is another, I mean, also an answer to that accusation. So that's how it came to be. Very interesting. So you said that there are many aspects of his life that have been totally whitewashed out by contemporary and other historians, especially Indian historians. So before I go into that, I would like to ask you, what do you mean by inconvenient nationalist? <laughs> who was he inconvenient to and who is it still in inconvenient to today? <clears throat> uh, Netaji is inconvenient to all political parties. Hmm. And that's one reason why no government is going walking that last mile to bring a closure to his disappearance mystery. Although the truth is known to everybody, but that's the biggest question everybody in everyone's mind in our country today, that why is the government, despite knowing the truth, not coming out with it, not giving an official stamp on it. Everybody knows the truth. I mean, it's not that the government doesn't know, it's not that the political leaders don't know. Most of the top level political leaders that we have been in touch with, we have spoken to, Senior bureaucrats, former bureaucrats we have spoken to, they all know the truth. But the question, big question is why are they not telling the truth? The answer lies there, uh, that he he is an inconvenient nationalist. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, Suvas Bose, uh, uh, compare him with his contemporary leaders. Everybody, every leader has his own constituency. Sardar Patel has his constituency. The Patels, the Gujaratis, they have, he has his constituency. Mahatma Gandhi has his constituency of a particular sect of the Congress. You know, they will, and, and even outside Congress, in so many TV debates uh, these days, you will see that, uh, I mean, the invocation of Bapu. How can you say this? Could you ever face Bapu? I mean, come on, give me a break. But whatever it is, there is a constituency. Nehru similarly has a constituency. So, I mean, even if you, when you, even when you go back in the history, say, for example, if you are talking about Shivaji Maharaj, he has a particular constituency. Subhash Bose never had a constituency of his own, despite his immense popularity. And that is a very striking feature of his personality, of his political activity, political life. <clears throat> now, there is a saying uh, in uh, English that what belongs to everyone belongs to no one. Subhash Bose is a prime example of that. So uh, he was his own man. 
he he did not subscribe to any uh, particular ism political ism his uh, primary focus goal was to win independence for india and then reconstruction of free india that was his sole focus and for that he would ally with any political group if required for that he would adopt uh, tenets of different ideology if that suited his purpose he would not uh, be dogmatic so he was not a communist uh, he was not a hindutvavadi he was not uh, a gandhian but in his work in his life you will find strands of all these ideologies in his work he was not a fascist so but even then he admired uh, certain aspects of fascism he admired certain aspects of authoritarian rule which cannot be denied now so his uh, approach was pragmatic what suits national interest so he he very categorically articulated this thing that india must think of her own interest this he articulated in 1939 and that one single line clearly shows what a far thinking person he was because that slogan came back to india in 2013 when narendra modi made india first his electoral slogan so india first and that is what subhash bose had exactly said in 1939 and the congress party did not like it, like it at all because they had a very nebulous vague thing about abstract morality you know good bad we are democrats and uh, we are peaceful so all the, all this kind of stuff was there so with by following this line of political thinking subhas actually alienated or annoyed antagonized the gandhian bloc to begin with his first fight was with the gandhian bloc because he never subscribed to uh, non violence as a dogma it was uh, it was a a, a strategy a, a tactic to be adopted to be uh, utilized to be implemented for certain goals specific goals but non violence as a dogma no that's not going to happen uh, so gandhian wing uh, including the senior leaders all the gandhian senior leaders the uh, group known as the gandhian high command so mahatma gandhi sardar patel uh, i will keep jawaharlal nehru on the outside for the moment then uh, chakravarti raja gopalachari uh, kripalani uh, all these people uh, bulabai desai all and and many others the gandhian wing were absolutely uh, against him and ideologically there could not have been a wider gap between them now he so was declared himself uh, he was a uh, self declared socialist so that should have brought him closer to the communists and the congress socialist party but the congress socialist party as it turned out were more gandhian because uh jayaprakash narayan and uh, ramon lohia were extremely concerned that was was leading a movement which would create a break from the gandhian uh, congress and that they couldn't support so they went against subhas they didn't like it uh, although i mean at the fag end of subhas's career in india uh, sometimes towards the end of 1940 when he had chalked out everything about his uh, escape from india that time uh, japrakash narayan wrote him a secret letter which was handed over to him uh, admitting that japrakash was wrong 
in reading the political uh, environment and Subhas was right. So Jafrakas offered that uh, you were right and so let's work together. But it was too late by that time. Now Congress Socialist Party's position was that and there was another funny thing about Congress Socialist Party. So when the Congress Socialist Party went against Subhas, uh, the central leadership went against Subhas. Uh, Jafrakas, Ramon Laya, Minu Masani, they were against him. But their provincial uh, committees, they broke away with the central committee. So they were uh, arguing that, no, we need to support Suhas uh, in, in, the, in the struggle against uh, British imperialism, in his plan for uh, winning independence. We need to stand by him. We need to support. So the Congress Socialist Party actually broke into many parts. Uh, and a large number of people came over to form a block, so, which was Suhas's party. Uh, so this was Congress Socialist Party, now the Communist Party. The Communist Party, uh, initially uh, the leader of the Communist Party of India, uh, uh, Manavendranath Roy, M.N. Roy, he worked in collaboration, he was very supportive of Suhas and he was supportive of Suhas till about 1938, uh, till about 1939, he was supportive. But the Com Communist Party, uh, our Communist Party's ideological fathers, uh, which was, uh, in, I mean, the Communist Party, of course, was driven by the agenda set by the Cominter, the Communist International in Moscow. So they were not happy with Suvas's line of political thinking. And uh, at the base of it, at the root of it, there was a very, very funny thing. They, they feared that with his radical thinking and his radical political line, Suvas was actually poaching onto their own constituency. So he was taking away the labor leaders, the student leaders. So he was trying to organize them, which was actually the role of the Communist Party. So the Communist Party was very uh, annoyed and very, very cautious about him at that time. And they opposed him. And uh, But they came together for a brief period. Uh, the Communist Party uh, refused to join the forward bloc, which was not a party, but uh, a group of a progressive group within the Congress. They said that we want to retain our separate identity. And uh, uh, they, as a result, they formed the Left Consolidation Committee. So was formed the Left Consolidation Committee. So the Congress the Communist Party joined there. But very soon there was a break and uh, they, they uh, refused to support Suvas anymore uh, towards the end of 1939-1940, a clean break. And this uh, break aggravated. So we find that uh, the, P.C. Joshi, the leader of the Communist Party during the uh, World War, when Suvas is in Germany and when he's uh, making broadcasts from Germany, from Japan, and he's sending his men into India to organize the ground level revolutionaries and uh, an uprising. We find that P.C. Joshi is going to the uh, uh, Viceroy, to the Intelligence Bureau Chief and reporting to them about the activities which Suvas's party was doing. So they were spying. They were spying and reporting, uh, snitching on uh, Suvas's party and his followers. And uh, they, at a, uh, parallelly, they were running a vicious campaign against him. So they named him uh, the running dog of uh, you know, Japanese imperialism, uh, a stooge of Hitler. And uh, so he will bring the Japanese into India and make India hell. So, and they called him all possible sorts of names. So they were com completely against him. The Hindu Tuvavadis, the Hindu Mahasabha. Hindu Mahasabha, Subhas had very serious 
differences uh, with Savarkar uh, regarding his politics. So, uh, he had a lot of respect as an individual. He had a lot of respect for Savarkar as an individual. But politically, he was scathing in his criticism. But uh, and, and it was returned by Savarkar. Savarkar didn't agree with many of the propositions of Subhash. And uh, for a brief period, they tried to bring up an alliance in uh, during the particularly during the Calcutta Municipal Corporation elections of 1940. But that alliance didn't work and it uh, broke off. And after the alliance broke off, Subhash went and allied with the Muslim League. Uh, the Muslim League thought that they had uh, got a great catch and uh, they were very uh, overjoyed with it. They wanted to exploit Suvas's image and uh, uh, push their agenda. Of course, Suvas had a different point of view and he was not uh, in line, in sync with the separatists, the Pakistan uh, propaganda. He was absolutely against it. He was absolutely against the communal divide. What he was trying to do at that time was to bring the progressive elements, which he called the progressive elements in both Hindu Mahasava and the Muslim League on a uh, common plank. So he was trying to bring them into the mainstream. That was his thing. And Muslim League was viewing his joining the alliance from a different perspective. So looking at this was uh, from, a, uh, from a distance and more objectively was the governor of Bengal. So he, we find in his uh, note, uh, to the viceroy, uh, I mean, it's it's quite amusing. He says that the Muslim League thinks that they have got Subhas in, in their grips and they are very happy about it. But they have no idea what Subhas Bose can do to their party. He is such a slippery character that probably he will manage breaking them up. So while this was going on, Subhas was arrested and he had to leave the country. Now, from here, uh, let us move to after independence. After the independence, after independence, Suvas's popularity was sky high and nobody came close to him. So everybody had to pay at least lip service. The communists had to show him, show their respects. The Gandhians, including Mahatma Gandhi himself, had to show him his respects. Pandit Nehru, Patel, everybody, Hindu Mahasava. Hindu Mahasava, of course, I mean, uh, after Suvas left the country, Hindu Mahasava was never critical. They never said anything uh, uh, harsh or critical about him. Rather, very strangely, when uh, it was known that he was he had left the country, Savarkar issued a public statement that wherever he is, the wishes, the good wishes of the countrymen are with him and let him succeed in his mission. So it was, it was a very uh, warm kind of uh, uh, statement. And nobody, no other political party uh, talked in that uh, tone at that time. It was only Savarkar who said that. Despite their political differences, they were politically different, but despite their differences. So, uh, Hindu Mahasabha was also supporting Subhas Bose. Muslim League, of course, wanted to wanted their share of the pie. So, they jumped in. They uh, said that, okay, we will defend the Muslim soldiers of the INA. And uh, and the Muslim soldiers of the INA refused. Uh, Shah Nawaz Khan was, of course, uh, at the center stage of the trial, in the, in the Red Foot Trials. Uh, and uh, he refused help from Muslim League. So, after independence, Subhas's popularity was such, nobody could ignore him. And at the same time, nobody could forget the bitter past. So, they would not, they were not in a position to take him in, absorb, co-opt, or appropriate fully, and they could not also ignore him. Because you ignore him at a great political cost. 
people of the country at the mass level were worshipping him. So he could, no, he could not be ignored. So he became a thorn in their throat. So they couldn't take it out, they couldn't swallow it. And that set the tone and that uh, uh, has continued till today. And so there is a lot of uh, criticism against BJP now that BJP the Hindutva camp is trying to appropriate Subhash Bose. Yes, probably it's a correct uh, interpretation, but I don't see anything wrong in that because when the Congress say that Subhash Bose was a congressman and they start praising him, that is another kind of appropriation because Subhash was kicked out of Congress and he, uh, he was very strong in his utterances against the policies of uh, both Nehru and Gandhiji. So, uh, and, and when the left front, uh, of which are revamped, uh, changed, uh, forward block is a component of, constituent of the left front, when the left front start worshipping Suvasbos, they tend to forget. They, they, they have issued a, a very convenient apology that our assessment of Suvasbos at the time was wrong, so we said the wrong things, but their reservation against Suvas remains the same. Political reservation remains the same. So you see, all the political groups, they are eulogizing him, they are praising him, they are trying to utilize him, exploit his image as much as possible. But they will not rehabilitate him to that place. They will not give him that honors that he deserves. So that is the that is why Subhash Bose still remains in the fringe. He has been marginalized, sidelined. The mainstream political discourse of India has included uh, the thoughts and words of Nehru, Gandhi, Patel, uh, Ambedkar, uh, even uh, Jafrakash Narayan and Lohia. But Subhas is missing. And he was an extremely erudite and uh, uh, well-read, well-informed person with, with a great foresight. So what could have been the reason? The reason is this, that he was inconvenient to everyone. It suited everybody's purpose to keep him on the sideline, never let uh, his troublesome radical ideas come onto the mainstream. And because that would disrupt their group thinking, their group ideologies. And it was safer and it was better for everyone to pay respects, to show, issue a stamp now in commemoration or do a function in Red Fort. Do those. I mean, that, that doesn't harm anything. That doesn't harm anybody. Uh, you show people that you are remembering Netaji. People are happy. Parties are happy. But the real thing remains unsaid and un, uh, undone. So that's the reason why I, I wanted to bring out it, uh, this aspect as crudely as possible, as bluntly as possible. That's why I use the name inconvenient nationalism. That's, that's a lot to unpack in what you have just said. So let me start with constituency. You said something very interesting that that Nehru had a constituency, Patel had a constituency, Gandhi had one, but Bose did not have any. And in the past on my podcast, etc., I've spoken about this, that a leader must have a constituency. Without a constituency, you are not a leader. So yeah. it looks like people like Gandhi and uh, Patel and uh, etc., they had these sections of Indian society that that formed their constituency. Correct. Whereas it looks like for Bose, the whole of India was this constituency. And maybe that's the reason why he was so popular after 1947 when he had already disappeared. So do you think that it is the reason, the 
because he had no uh, section of Indian society as his constituency. Is that why he was inconvenient to everybody? Because they were all in some way serving somebody or other, which was at a sub-national level. Is it? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, actually, what I'm trying to say is uh, that uh, he, his constituency, uh, so to speak, were the youth and the students. And uh, he started organizing them right from 1928 after he was released from his first uh, phase of exile. When he came back from uh, the Burmese prisons, he started organizing the students and the youth. And this worried the British government. So we see secret notes uh, being issued by the uh, governor of Bengal, by the viceroy. And they're saying that, and, and at that time, they're putting Nehru and Subhas in the same bracket. They're saying that, uh, the Viceroy at the time, Lord Arwin, is writing that for the first time, independence, the word independence has uh, transcended, crossed that boundary of being a mere word. Subhas and Nehru mean action. They are not just speaking words. So Subhas was constantly uh, organizing uh, student and youth community across the country, throughout the country. And this was not taken well either by the British government or by the Gandhian High Command. <clears throat> they had their own. Because here I, I want to bring in uh, uh, another uh, hypothesis that I have is, uh, I, I'll come to it later. Maybe we should take it up separately. It, it, it demands some discussion. Uh, so what Subhas was doing is he, he was playing around with organizations. He was So he was uh, with the Hindustan Republican Army. He was collaborating with the Hindustan Socialist Republican Army, first uh, HRA of Sachindranath Sanal, then HSRA of Bhagat Singh, Sukhdev, Rajguru. Uh, he was uh, collaborating with the Naujavan Bharat Sabha. Uh, so all these organizations, in Bengal, of course, there were uh, the Anushilan Samiti, uh, the Jugantar Dal, uh, and, and these were the big ones. There were many smaller ones, of course. There were the uh, Bengal volunteers, which became a very, very dedicated and loyal co group of revolutionaries loyal to Subhash. And then there were uh, there was a Dhaka group of Sri Sangha. Uh, and the most of these uh, uh, radical revolutionary groups were based in Eastern Bengal. And uh, some of them in Punjab, some of them in United Provinces, towards, uh, uh, and, and uh, of course, Western India. In Maharashtra and Central Provinces, Subhash was very active. He moved towards the southern part of the country a little later. When he became the president, that's when he started focusing towards that part of the country. And <clears throat> so he was trying to gradually build up, not as his, uh, not uh, groups, not as his followers, but as, uh, as, as, uh, as an organization with, uh, so he looked at it like an army. So there would be an army with, uh, with divisions, battalions. So he was organizing like that. And his idea was that, when they are prepared and the time comes, they should rise in unison. They should rise together. And that uprising, if that happens, then the British uh, Raj will not be able to survive even for a minute. So there was a, a little bit of conflict with the revolutionaries who were uh, taking up, uh, uh, say, acts of terror, which of the, the language of those years, the acts of terror, uh, I mean, violence, uh, sporadic violence. So killing somebody, a district magistrate or a judge. Uh, so these kind of killings were going on. And, and 
Subhas had a lot of respect and admiration for these people. A lot of respect and admiration for the sacrifice that they had uh, shown. But he, uh, from the 1930s, late 1920s and early 1930s, I see that he is trying to get them work in a different, along a different line. He, he was at that time in public meetings, he is constantly telling them. So these are the aspects that have never been brought out actually. So he was telling them that, look, a revolution in a country like India is not possible with one pistol and one and a half bombs. You can kill a few people here and a few people there, but that is not going to give you freedom. Rather, the uh, repercussion, the backlash is going to be severe. So don't uh, waste your strength by trying to kill one person here, one person there. Rather, organize yourself, train yourself. And this training, training in military discipline, in uh, so uh, the, the first sign of this came in the 1928 Congress, annual Congress in Calcutta, where Subhas organized a band of volunteers, a core of volunteers, uh, which, which were dressed in military uniform. He himself, as the general officer commanding, so that he took that title on himself, general officer commanding of the volunteer force. And uh, that military discipline, that military ethos, that was so uh, clear and marked that it annoyed the hell out of Gandhiji. He couldn't stop criticizing and uh, saying the nastiest of things about that, uh, that, that show, that exhibition of military ethos. So he, he went ballistic against it. But that was the beginning. And that continued from 1928. It continued. So uh, uh, small groups were being organized. They used to do route marches across cities uh, throughout the provinces. And uh, they would be given training. There would be secret cells who would plan. There were so many revolutionary groups. So And, and they were, unfortunately, they were uh, also fighting against one another. So in Bengal, the most unfortunate thing that happened was that the two big revolutionary parties, the Anushilan Samiti and the Jugantar party, they were against each other. And one party chose Subhashbos and another party chose uh, his rival Congress candidate, uh, Jatindra Mohan Gupta. So they couldn't come together. So Subhash was also one of the reasons why he could not build a constituency is that while he was doing all these things, he was also having to deal with the internecine conflict, the fight between factions. So that was, uh, he, he needed time for that and he didn't get enough time because uh, uh, in 1930, he was thrown in jail. 31, he was thrown in jail. 32, he was arrested and 33, he was sent to exile for the next four years. So, uh, and, and before that, as he was starting his political career, he, he was arrested in 1924 and kept in prison without any charge, without any trial, till uh, middle of 1927. So, and, then, and then there was no other political leader of his stature who was treated like that. Uh, Jawaharlal Nehru was never uh, put under such conditions. He was never uh, sent to exile. Gandhiji was never done, Patel was never done, uh, was never sent to exile. Because the British government knew who they were dealing with. They knew where the threat was coming from. So, uh, this, uh, uh, this this unstructured organization that Subhas was grappling with, 
he really started devoting his energy in structuring it and bringing it together was from 1939 when he came out of congress and started forming the uh, he formed the forward bloc so he sent out his emissaries to different parts of the country and uh, specific very specific people of course this was been done uh, with great secrecy and uh, one of his uh, old revolutionary associate went out uh, met uh, bhai parmanand in punjab uh, the savarkar brothers uh, uh, golwalkar ji and had never had passed by that time uh, so all these people and the, the gadar revolutionaries so he tried to bring all of them as a last ditch attempt in 1939 and th- this thing was gathering and he was traveling to south at that time and uh, forming his organization consolidating his organization there and as this was building up by mid 1940 he was again thrown to jail and the war had started and he saw that there was no way that he would be released as long as the war lasted so he just left the country so that is the that is the that is one of the key reasons why he didn't have a constituency because he started the process he couldn't complete it and that that and and the pockets his influence remained but they didn't come together it didn't gel together so that that that's uh, that was unfortunate unfortunate for india unfortunate for him and uh, it 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 would have been a different story had he succeeded in bringing all the forces together so he was unable to he did not he was not afforded the time to be able to unify all of these disparate revolutionary right. forces together right so yes. when you wear a uniform a military uniform and when you organize the youth in a military style that is a direct challenge to the ruling order which is the british and yes. uh, so they, they must have seen him as the biggest threat now subhash bose was unable to organize all of these disparate forces together because he was in jail etc but even the congress party's leaders were in jail very often so how was the congress party so well oiled well unified what was the unifying factor there which subhash bose was not able to have uh one one thing uh, that's a that's a very good very good question how did they do it because uh, first thing is that uh, before uh, subhas or uh, leaders of his generation came uh, into the national uh, arena gandhi had established his his supremacy and he had built a, a second rank team so in 1924 for example if you see who are the key leaders coming up in bengal it is subhas bose and jatendra mohan sen gupta uh, of course chitranjan das is still alive and he is at, at, at par with gandhi at that time chitranjan motilal nehru gandhi they are at par so they are the national top national leaders and under them motilal is aligned with chitranjan das at that time so and motilal is aligned with chitranjan das but jawarlal is aligned with gandhi so there is a there is a dichotomy there gandhi had been able to build his second rank very efficiently and who are these leaders they are uh, rajagopalachari they are sardar patel uh, there is gandhi and there is nehru and these are very high quality leaders so the gandhian program uh, uh, kripalani is there so the gandhian program even if gandhi is uh, in jail which he was in 24 1920 uh, 
two, he was thrown in jail. Uh, but Gandhi's being in jail does not stop the Gandhian missionary because he had successful, successfully created that missionary. So there is Sadar Patel is taking the movement forward. Pandit Nehru, although he is aligned with Subhas in terms of uh, uh, life's outlook, philosophical outlook, uh, the modern outlook, a scientific modern outlook, and uh, ideas, economic and social ideas, he was in the Gandhian camp because he would never ditch Gandhi. He he would break with Subhash, but he would not break with Gandhi. So for him, Gandhi's personality was much uh, more important than the ideal, than the ideas that which he subscribed. So he would subordinate his ideas and ideals to Gandhi's demands, Gandhi's program. So that was there. And Subhash, on the other hand, probably it was one of his uh, weaknesses as a leader where he was not able to replicate that model of that Gandhian leadership. And it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, modern management principle also. I mean, when you see succession, succession is a very critical component of modern management. If there is a top leadership, the next level should be ready to take over when he gives hangs up his boots. So Gandhiji did that very nicely. Deshpandu Chitranjan did that very nicely. But Deshpandu Chitranjan's death was so unexpected and so sudden. It uh, caught his uh, immediate disciples uh, unprepared. They were kind of uh, splintered because Gandhi captured half of them. He took over Jatendra Mohan Sen Gupta and some of the import, other important leaders. They went into the Gandhian camp. Uh, some of the Swaraj party remained with Suvas. But, uh, and then the revolutionary groups which were supporting Suvas, they splintered. So, and Suvas was wearing many hats at that time. So he was focusing on Calcutta Corporation and municipal governance. He was focusing on uh, the proceedings within the assembly, legislative assembly. And he was focusing on the youth and the student communities, building them up. And at the same time, he was uh, dealing with uh, the Congress uh, politics. He was a member of the working committee. So the overall Congress politics at the national level. So uh, he was uh, wearing too many hats. Probably he had too many balls to juggle with. And uh, that uh, deficiency of not having an immediate second rung of leadership which would take his agenda forward and build that organization, which Gandhi could, uh, which Deshpandu Chitranjan could, uh, that probably was one of his weaknesses, why he could not do that, which the Gandhian High Command could. So it's a very well-oiled missionary, the Gandhian High Command, the Gandhian group, where there was no parallel institution uh, on Suvas' side. So that, that's, a, that's a good point, and that is something that uh, is probably one of his few weaknesses. Is it uh, really a weakness? For instance, uh, Gandhi was was afforded the time by the British to build his entire team. It appears to me that like the they are like the British were kind of sympathetic towards Gandhi and the Congress Party, the moderates, so to say. And Subhash Bose was more of an extremist. He sought an overthrow of the British, and that's why he did not get the kind of traction. He was not allowed the kind of traction that maybe people persons like yeah, people like Gandhi I, would. that's true that's right i mean i i am being harsh when i say that it was his weakness i am being harsh critic and uh, uh, on the on the uh, on every parameter i am being harsh than i sh should be but because uh, 
I am his biographer, so I can't be seen to be biased towards him. So it was a deficiency. It was a deficiency, no mm. doubt. But you are uh, very right in saying that Gandhi was given the time and space. So even when he was in jail, he was given all the facilities. The jail terms of Subhash Bose were extremely harsh. And 11 times he was thrown into jail and uh, put in very, very uh, difficult uh, conditions because of which his health suffered. His health suffered a lot. His health suffered while he was in the Burmese prison. His health suffered while he was in the uh, in Indian prisons. He was beaten up. Show me, I mean, if Gandhi was ever beaten up by uh, the police officers, if Nehru or Patel was ever beaten up, beaten by the batons, the police beating him up with the, with the baton. He's taking a procession, the police, of, a mounted police comes and hits on his head uh, with, with the baton. He falls down. In the jail, he is uh, thrashed by the uh, Afghan uh, police officers or the Punjabi uh, police officers. So that kind of treatment, uh, that harsh treatment was never meted out to any of the top Gandhian leaders. Never. They have been there to the prison for extended period, yes, but not as much as Subhash and not certainly not in those harsh conditions. And these two exiles, two exiles, 24 to 27, three years and uh, 33, uh, I would take, say 32 because he was thrown to prison in 32 very early 32, beginning of 1932. So 32 till 37 when he was released. Five years. So five years here, uh, three years there, eight years. His, uh, and then last six months, put uh, another, I mean, uh, cumulative term, uh, time of all his other imprisonments, take another year, year and a half. So out of his uh, political career in India of say 24 years, uh, nearly 10 years have gone to prison. So he is left with only 14 years. And then that is a, a much shorter period of time uh, which he had compared to most of the other top leaders. And uh, so, I mean, I, again, that, that was of deficiency of time was, of course, there. But uh, again, I mean, when, when, when you look at Patel, Patel is relatively easier for him to... Uh, organize his community, drive a specific uh, uh, agenda and satyagraha. He is leading the Bardoli satyagraha and he comes to national fame and he comes to light national fame. Mahatma Gandhi picks him up, puts him in the national stage. Jawaharlal Nehru is Mahatma Gandhi's disciple uh, even when Motilal Nehru is uh, against Gandhiji's views. So Gandhiji has chosen Jawaharlal Nehru to project him. So, on the contrary, if you look at Suvaspos, he is always the bad boy. He is fighting with Gandhi. He is fighting with the Gandhians. He is siding with Deshbandhu Chitarangam. And uh, so, obviously, he is never the choice. He is never... Gandhi comes to terms with Suvaspos' politics somewhat uh, in, in, in 1929, when uh, after all the arguments and altercations and bitterness, uh, 1929, 1930, he, he says that, well, let's not uh, allow bitterness to creep into our relation. Let the differences be there. Let the arguments happen. But I would like to know more about you. You know, uh, it would be sad that if I feel that I don't know the youth of Bengal today, I adore the youth of Bengal. So, and Gandhi is constantly trying to put Subhas as 
in the shoes of a Bengal leader. Whereas he is at the same time saying that it is Jawaharlal uh, who should be at the uh, helm of the Congress. Because he, Motilal was pushing Jawaharlal to be the president of Congress in 1927. Gandhi was pushing Jawaharlal to be the president of Congress in 1928. And finally, Jawaharlal becomes the president in 1929. And in 1929, how did he become the president of the uh, Congress? Because uh, the nominations used to come from the uh, provincial Congress committees. And the overwhelming vote for that year was for Gandhiji, a 1929 uh, Lahore Congress. And uh, in Bengal, what happened? Subhas Bose got more votes than Gandhiji. So that, that was also a factor. I mean, even in 1929, so the story that we know that Subhas defeated Gandhi's candidate in 1939, that uh, same thing had happened 10 years ago. So by that time, Suvas had uh, taken over Gandhi in Bengal in terms of popularity and in terms of his appeal of his political program. So, uh, but then Jawaharlal is not in the picture in 1929. What Gandhiji does is he says that uh, uh, I think Jawaharlal is, uh, is the best candidate. Nobody comes close to him in terms of qualification and uh, he should be the president. Jawaharlal himself wrote in his autobiography later that I was not at all happy with the way I was uh, 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 pushed into the, the, the presidency was thrusted onto me. It was thrust onto me. But, but then I always uh, agreed with what Gandhiji said, so I took it on. So that's how one group, Gandhi was nurturing his second rung. He was looking for their development, bringing them up and at the same time taking good care that the uh, the indisciplined and troublesome Subhas remains kind of subdued and does not get into the center stage. So that factor is also there. So it, it was not only the deficiency of his uh, leadership uh, uh, style, but the time that he got, the treatment by the British, the treatment by Gandhi himself and the Gandhian high command. So all these factors contributed to his not being able to build his constituency. So it's clear that there is a there was a very wide difference between the vision that Gandhi had for the for the politics of India and what Bose had. So what was the vision that Bose had from India for India? And what, how was it different from the vision that Gandhi had for India? Uh, yeah, I, this, this is where I come back. I will come back to the point which I had uh, stopped talking about a few minutes ago. So this is a framework which uh, I, I, it came uh, to my mind. I, and this is a kind of a different framework than the professional and traditional historians. So I started looking at uh, the immediate objective of the freedom fighters of our national leader, nationalist leaders, top leaders. I mean, I'm not demeaning anybody or I'm not uh, showing anybody down, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assessing them from their, from the perspective of their immediate objective. So what was Mahatma Gandhi's immediate objective? What was his ultimate goal? His immediate objective, his goal was to transform humanity. It was not to win India's independence. The goal of Suhas Bose was to win India's independence. It was not to transform humanity. So that is a fundamental difference, which 
give rise to all other differences. And as personalities, as far as personality is concerned, uh, Subhas Bose and Mahatma Gandhi were as different as any two human beings on this earth can be in terms of their uh, social background, cultural background, educational upbringing, uh, the breadth of mind, uh, their treatment of religion in their lives, everything, take everything, any factor, they were completely different. But in the public life, in, in, in political life, the difference started from here. That Gandhi's aim and objective was to transform humanity and Suvasa's objective was to win India's independence. If you look at other figures, like say Jawaharlal Nehru, Jawaharlal Nehru's objective was also to win India's independence. But he would, as I said, he would give up his principles and ideals when it he came into a clash with Gandhiji. So he would talk a lot, he would write a lot, say radical things, but when it came to the time for voting or deciding a camp, he would always go back to Gandhiji's words. And, and he he has himself admitted it a number of times in his own autobiography. So these are not my words, these are his own words. Patel's uh, immediate objective, if you see, was more about uh, organizational uh, goal. So his thing was strengthening the Gandhian Congress. Obviously, uh, it was uh, India's freedom was there. I mean, who didn't want India's freedom? Everybody wanted India's freedom at that time. Even the liberal leaders wanted India's freedom. So, but the, the defense was always what kind of freedom? What was the, the definition of Swaraj? The word used conveniently at different points of time by almost everyone. So Swaraj sometimes meant dominion status. It sometimes meant some sort of uh, extra power given to Indians in the Viceroy Executive Council or in the ministries. Uh, and and uh, sometimes it means whenever it was convenient, it meant freedom, complete independence. For Subhash, it was always complete independence. For Jawaharlal, it was always Indian independence. And knowing that, he agreed to dominion status, which was a betrayal of his own ideals. So, although, so the difference between Subhash and Jawaharlal Nehru was that primarily this difference, that both had the same ideals. But whereas Subhash stuck to his principles and his ideals, Nehru stepped back and actually betrayed his own principles and ideals. He chose something else over his own belief. That was the main difference. Patel, as I said, was mostly organizational. He was more uh, about maintaining discipline in Congress, maintaining a very iron, strong iron grip over the uh, other leaders, provincial leaders, and uh, ensuring that Congress remains Gandhian. So, they, these are the goals and the objectives which differentiate. It helps you understand the actions of these people over an extended period of time. And that uh, difference. So, I mean, even if I come to something as personal as religion. So, religion is both personal and public. But Gandhi's religion is more theoretical. He is uh, explaining Gita, Srimad Bhagavad Gita in his own manner. He is interpreting as, as a modern day prophet, religious principles, spiritual principles. He is saying that uh, 
if 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 I if I have to go against Sri Krishna, uh, I would go against him. If if he believed in violence, I would go against him. So non-violence is his uh, word. He he is not. He is so dogmatic about it. He is unable to think or look beyond it. Subhash, on the other hand, religion uh, clearly had two aspects: personal and public. So his personal spiritual practice was practice driven. He went deep into sadhana from his student days. It was completely uh, the path of sadhana that he chose. So he would meditate. He would do. He would read up about tantra. He would uh, do puja, different methods of sadhana. He would learn about them, practice them, and it went on. So whenever he was in jail, his own cell would all one corner of his cell would always be covered by curtain. That used to be his puja room. That was he would worship there, and nobody else was allowed entry there. And that was a constant feature from beginning to the end. And uh, even when in we we see when when uh, the war is going on, I mean cities are being destroyed. Uh, planes are bombing cities people are dying even then he would take out time at the midnight to wear a, a saffron robe go to the ramkrishna mission and meditate for hours so he he would always carry a small copy of shrimad bhagavad gita and a, a, a rudraksh mala with him uh, on his body all the time this that, that sadhana driven i mean is is uh, view his uh, idea, his his perspective on religion was driven or it was based on sadhana, on practical application, not theoretical. But in the public life also, he would take a very stringent stand. Although he was a very secular leader, which uh, Congress loves to talk about now, but today's secularism is is miles apart, hundreds of miles apart from the secularism of Sivasvos. Subhas Bose would never hesitate to take a very strong stand on his own religion. So in Mandala, we see that he is leading the prisoners there in a hunger strike against the policy of the Bhamis government and the Bengal government for not allowing Durga Puja or Saraswati Puja, not paying for it. He says that you are giving allowance to the Muslims you are giving allowance to the Christians, and when it comes to my Hindu religion, you are taking a biased view. You are trying to suppress our religious practices. So he would take a public stand. Same thing happened in Alipur jail. He would he would say that uh, I will do Durga Puja. This is Durga Puja time. It's my right. It is my religious freedom. My right. I will do Durga Puja. So the government would have to uh, bend down every time. He he would create a ruckus. So uh, it's it's not as if uh, I mean he was he was not like a modern secular leader who would try who would cringe or who would shy away from uh, uh, proclaiming his Hindu identity. He was very proud Hindu, and a number of times, all the time, he would say, uh, tell everybody in all his speeches that, uh, especially to the youth and the students, that you have to be rooted in your uh, past. If you forget your heritage, if you forget your history, your glorious past, if you stop feeling proud of your past, of your history, then you will never be able to build the future of your country. Because uh, you will be completely uprooted. You will not know what nationalism means. 
nationalism for him was not the uh, sectarian, bigoted, narrow uh, ideology, which as it is portrayed today. For him, nationalism was Satyam Shivam Sundara. It's, it's the truth, it's beneficial to everybody, and it's beautiful. So it's broad, wide, all-encompassing, and there is nothing narrow about it. So that was his view of nationalism. So all these uh, views, and, and, and you would say that India has a mission. India has a mission for the world. And here, uh, he would take great pride in saying that so many ethnicities, so many religions have come together in this country. It's like a melting pot. And it is the challenge for us to create a model in front of the entire world for them to follow. That despite so many cultures, despite so many religions, despite so many different strands of thought, we can amalgamate everything. We can create uh, an, an ambience, uh, a country where all these are in harmony. So uh, in terms of religious rights, he would say that religious rights, uh, obviously he believed uh, and uh, that was uh, somewhat political that the British were mainly responsible for Hindu-Muslim riots. But apart from that, he would also say that Hindus don't know enough about Islam and Muslims don't know enough about Hinduism. Same for Christians. They don't know about the other religions. So if India is to develop as a composite country, each person of different religions have to know intimately about the other religions. And that only that would bring in genuine respect and feeling. And if there are differences, once you know each other intimately, those are differences that you can sort out. And it was not, again, just like his religious, uh, uh, I mean, approach was different from Gandhi's. It was not theoretical, it was practical. He applied this principle and it was seen in both in Europe, where he set up the Free India Center, and in Southeast Asia, where he set up the Azadin government and the INA. It was, he applied the principle. Nobody ever had any religious problem. Nobody, religious, religion was never uh, an issue. Common kitchen, the practice of the British Indian Army of having separate kitchens, uh, untouchability, all these were demolished and nobody, not a single person had any problem with that. That was unthinkable at that time. That, that the magnitude, the scale of that achievement, everybody had to uh, acknowledge and, and Nehru used this example even when he became prime minister. For many years after his prime minister, he became prime minister that if Suvazbos could do it, why can't we do it? Why are we not able to do it? So this was uh, a challenge. I mean, this is something he did the achieved the unthinkable. And uh, so this, all these were uh, very basic and fundamental differences with Gandhi and with the Gandhian camp. Of course, there were also uh, political and uh, petty political issues, the issues of uh, retaining power uh, within in, in a small group, in a small coterie. That's why the high command, uh, those were there, but there were very, very fundamental differences. It's very interesting to learn about his religious observances, which I was not really that much aware of, despite him having this image of being a secular leader. So if he was such a staunch Hindu, 
why was there this rift or this these differences between uh, subhash bose and the hindu mahasabha between him and savarkar etc what was the cause for that uh, he he never uh, really had much of a problem with the hindu mahasabha uh, as an organization he said that he, he always acknowledged the hindu mahasabha represented the interests of the hindus particularly in bengal when there was a very strong islamist uh, uh, and fanatic fundamentalist government uh, who were trying to uh, uh, enact laws or were pursuing policies which were communal and he acknowledged uh, that uh, the hindu mahasabha was doing good work he was never uh, hesitant to acknowledge the fact that the congress movement were uh, driven initially and i mean it, it generated through the bengali hindu bhadralok so they were the uh, pioneers but he had a problem in using religion for electoral politics and that is where the clash with uh, shama prasad mukherjee and savarkar happened uh, that was one of the issues why they differed he he said that you you cannot use religion for election purposes we uh, i mean of course there are communal issues there are communities their welfare have to be looked after and their interests have to be represented but not in this manner don't bring religion into politics that was his prime uh, point of difference with the hindu mahasabha and the other thing when before leaving the country he went and met savarkar in pune and uh, tried to explain to him that uh, i mean drop the communal point of view let's build a broad uh, a mass platform and take the campaign forward let's work towards the uprising that he had been planning and he wrote later in the second volume of his uh, political treatise the indian struggle that he was very very dissatisfied unhappy and uh, very uh, frustrated he said that savarkar uh, lacked the uh, understanding of global politics the broad global politics he was his only concern at that point was to get hindus recruited into the british indian army so that they can get military training which they could utilize against the muslims so suvas so was very annoyed with this point of view he said that's a very very narrow and sectarian point of view and the same thing he uh, said against jinda he said jinda is bothered only about pakistan that's his soul he is not interested about muslims he is uh, he is taking the help of the british he is a stooge of the british and uh, he uh, the muslim league is a party of the muslim landlords uh, which are uh, fed by the british uh, muslim landlords and capitalists fed by the british imperialists so Uh, they are unable to see the broad national picture so these two sectarian points of view approach towards politics he was against and that, that was so it was not in conflict with his world view where he was very sure and confident and proud of his own identity so he didn't have to obliterate his identity to become a world citizen and that was his uh, one of his main uh, big fights with ravindranath uh, tagore he he's, he was uh, completely against the idea of uh, the, the nomenclature given by uh, tagore of vishwamanav the universal global citizen 
because his point of view was unless you are rooted you cannot be floating around in empty space you have to be rooted somewhere you can be a global citizen only after you have known absorbed assimilated and you are uh, very proud of your own identity and then you reach out don't you don't have to be narrow but that does not mean that to become a global or universal citizen you have to forget who you are so there was a clash with tagore also there uh, of course i mean tagore later on uh, came to support uh, subhash in his fight against the gandhian high command uh, and and there was a religious clash with tagore also tagore was a brahmo he, he he his father was one of the founders of the brahmo samaj so uh, it so happened that in city college in calcutta which was owned by the brahmos it was a brahmo brahmo institution the hindu students who were in majority <clears throat> they wanted to do saraswati puja and uh, the college authorities forbade them they said that you cannot this is a brahmo institution and you cannot do saraswati puja so the students anyway went ahead and uh, forcibly did the puja and suvas sided with the students he said that this is religious freedom if they want to do the puja why stop them they are doing just they are worshiping their goddess of learning and that created a lot of rift and bitterness with tagore because tagore thought this was sacrilege uh, and uh, it shouldn't have been done suvas thought uh, this was perfectly normal in a multi religious country like india and nobody should be stopped from following their religion so uh, that, that that was another clash that was in the late 1920s 1928 29 and uh, so i mean at various points he was he was he was a very uh, uh, kind of stickler to his ideals he he, he never compromised and that is another uh, i mean the, the, in their own words where uh, gandhi ji says that i am a man of compromise and suvas bose writes that for me compromise is sin so that defines the differences between the two men i mean in in, in as uh, starkly as possible right so this another aspect that we should talk about so subhash bose is termed as an axis collaborator as a nazi collabor- collaborator somebody who allied with hitler so the question is why did he ally with hitler was he just because being pragmatic did he know about what's what was happening with the jews or was it so so what's the reason why he did that <coughs> well uh, first thing is you have to uh, remember that suvas was uh, in exile in europe from 1933 till 1936 when he forcibly came back defying the british ban and it was in 1933 that hitler came to power so it is just a few days before suvas sets his uh, feet on european soil that hitler had come to power so he saw the rise of hitler while being in europe he he uh, he uh, kind of formed relations with the national socialist party uh, top leaders and uh, of course he was uh, also given a good reception by the uh, roman government by mussolini and his government and and he was given very high status by them he was treated very well everywhere he went and uh, given special treatment and uh, he saw the movement very close from very close and that's when uh, he uh, formed i mean kind of uh, consolidated his views on fascism or nazism 
on the authoritarian political uh, schools of thought. And there were certain aspects which he admired, particularly the military discipline. He, he was a stickler for discipline. And he thought if India had to progress rapidly in a country which is uh, which, which, which is uh, marred with poverty, lack of healthcare, lack of education, lack of infrastructure, lack of industry, the first thing to prepare uh, the country for democracy was to inculcate that sense of discipline, without which he uh, predicted that it would be a chaos. It would the, the democratic model would be a failure. Uh, so he he wanted that uh, sense of discipline to be transferred transferred into his own political ideology, which he wanted for India. Now, having said that, he was also very very keenly aware of the racist nature of these regimes. So in Germany, we see that he was constantly trying to come to rescue of the students there who were being harassed for their uh, color of the skin, for their being Indians, for their dark skin. And he would take up the issues with the authorities, write uh, letters to them, representations to them in the strongest possible language. And uh, while coming back, while leaving Europe, or just after coming back, he writes to one of the senior officers of the National Socialist Party, a post holder, saying that, I'm sorry to say that your government is nothing but a narrow, bigoted, uh, racist government. And, and there is no way that we can support these things. What you do in your country, within your country, is your business. We are not bothered about it. But if you show this attitude to our Indian students there, then there is a big problem because in global relations in the international relations if all that matters to us is how you are looking at us and what kind of support and benefit you are going to give to us if if, if there is any suffering of our students of our people in your country then nothing is going to work and then in 1938 he uh, puts down his postulates his political thought very very clearly very clearly he says again he says that whatever is happening inside any country is their domestic business it is it is not our business our interest is to make india free that is our goal it india has to realize that her interest comes first so that uh, principle uh, kind of uh, worked as as his as his uh, uh, as a deciding factor that he would collaborate or he would take help from the Axis uh, bloc. But then let's, let's look at how it happened. By 1939, when he has formed Forward Bloc and uh, the World War has started, Germany, Italy are looked upon in India by Indian intellectuals as aggressors, as a racist regime, as uh, dictators. And they are, they are being severely criticized. Subhash's own paper, uh, his uh, party's organ was also called Forward Block, is critical about them, about their policies. He is criticizing the Japanese government, he is criticizing the German government, he is criticizing the Italian government. But he, at the same time, 
is admiring the military, uh, the progress in military technology that they had achieved. And he is like, like a politician who is a statesman, who balances positives and negatives. He, he sees that there is an opportunity. If the Germans and Italians have made such progress in military technology by which uh, they are able to beat the British, then there is something that India can look uh, up to. India can benefit from that. But in 1939 also, I mean, and that's also a period when it is now widely known that the Germans, uh, the, the, the Nazi uh, regime is torturing Jews. The gas chambers and the things, all the, the mass uh, murder, genocide are to begin later. And whatever killings are not going, going on, planning is going on, those are not, to, not known to the outside world. But enough news is coming out that uh, the Jews are being tortured and persecuted. So, and Subhash is himself uh, protesting against that. And uh, uh, he happened to make a friend, a Jewish friend, of a, Jewish, a friend of a Jewish couple in uh, while living in exile. So, uh, in he, uh, her name was Kitty Kuti. She was uh, studying, uh, I mean, at that time in Germany, uh, I think in Vienna or uh, in Berlin. I don't remember exactly. I, uh, I have to check. But then they develop a very close and fond relationship with the with the husband wife, the couple. So as was uh, develops a very uh, close relationship. So he advises the Jewish couple that this uh, is a monstrous uh, regime. Don't take any chance. Don't take any risk. There are better opportunities. You move to the U.S. You go over to the U.S. Don't don't you don't need to take, stay here. But then when he is uh, confronted by the couple that why are you uh, being nice with the national socialists with the nazis why are you trying to get their help why are you trying to build support for indian cause indian freedom amongst the current german government you know they're racist he says that look the choice for me is very clear because the british government which is ruling my country is no less monstrous they are killing millions of people. They are torturing millions of people in the jails. They are doing exactly the things which the German government is doing to the Jews. But because uh, it's a different country, it's a different government, different people, uh, that publicity, that propaganda is not building up. But for my country, they are facing this. My countrymen are facing the same treatment as the Jews are facing here. So for me, my priority is to save my countrymen, to liberate my country. That is my first goal. So that, again, as I said, uh, he, he, he explains that in his presidential speech in the Haripura Congress of uh, 1938. And then finally, he leaves India and goes over to Germany. But the question is, did he want to go to Germany at all? The evidence, all evidence points out that uh, he had no plans to go to Germany. He had planned. Subhas was, was a planner. He was a meticulous planner. He never did anything that was rash or on the spot or uh, uh, driven by impulse. He planned his activities meticulously. So he left India in January 1941. And this exit, he had started planning in 1939, November, December. So more than one year, he had been planning what to do. After the World War has started, he is looking for international collaborators. He is looking who is going to help India. 
how can we utilize the international situation? Because he's constantly telling Gandhiji, let's start the Satyagraha, let's start the mass movement. And Gandhiji is saying that we are not ready, Indians are not ready for a mass movement because we are not nonviolent enough. And till the time uh, Indians, every uh, Indian become nonviolent, they cannot be a Satyagrahi. So there is no question of Satyagraha. And Gandhiji uses the term, uh, which uh, uh, I'm forgetting, it's, it's a term from Srimad Bhagavad Gita, which, uh, which says that a man is so evenly balanced in his worldview that nothing perturbs him, nothing disturbs him. He is equanimous and, uh, and, and like a high level spiritual person who can look at everything very evenly with no disturbance in the mind. So every Indian would have to reach that stage and then only we can tell the British to leave their country. We can do the Satyagraha. And Suha says, this is madness. This is madness. And while Gandhiji is preaching this principle to Subhash, he is doing all the kind of stuff to make sure that Subhas is driven out of the uh, party. He is sidelined, cornered, all sorts of mean political uh, uh, I mean, steps that he would take. So Subhas is seeing that he is so he is fighting against the Gandhian High Command. He is trying to build up the mass movement that he wants. That work is going on. And he is trying to figure out how to get international collaboration with the powers that are fighting against the British. So at three fronts, he is working at that time. Unfortunately, he is thrown to jail in 1940, July, the beginning of July. And then there is nothing that he could do. But before that, he had sent people uh, to two routes to Russia. One route, he wanted to test out which are the best routes, which is the best route available to reach Russia. One was through the uh, South China Sea, through the coast, Chinese coast, and then you go to Russia. The other route was through uh, Northwest Frontier Province, Afghanistan, and then you enter Russia. So uh, with his uh, uh, supporters in the Northwest Frontier Province, who were uh, aligned with the Communist Party at that time, they were leftists but not part of the Communist Party, they were Communist by ideology. So the Kirti Kisan Party, who, who they were developing the, uh, the mechanism for his exiting India. So one of them, or a couple of them went to Russia and one of them uh, actually died while coming back. He was washed away by the current in the river when they were crossing the river into Russia. From Kolkata, he sends uh, one of his close followers, Lala Shankarlal, to Japan to meet the Russian ambassador there uh, to find out whether Russia would be interested in helping India, whether they would be receptive towards him. Shankarlal goes to Tokyo, meets the Japanese ambassador, meets the German ambassador also. But Subhas's plan was always going to Russia. So he goes, even when he escapes from Kolkata, goes to Kabul, Peshawar, uh, and then reaches uh, the Kabul embassy, he gets no response from the Russian embassy because the Russians were not sure whether to let him in. They were not favorably inclined. For whatever reasons, they were not favorably inclined. But the Italians and the Germans, they opened the door for him. And once he's there, there is no question of coming back into India. So he grabs 
the opportunity. Whatever offer he gets, he grabs and goes through Moscow to Berlin. And he is prepared with his plan. He, I mean, just think about it. He has left the country without any kind of uh, uh, organizational support, with the support of a few people of his uh, forward block. Uh, but no uh, big thing, no hype, nobody knows him there. He he has to impress every uh, person. I mean, he's, of course, his name is known. So that's why they would open the door for him. But he has to impress. Why would anybody take in Subhash Bose who is uh, leaving his country? What would they get? This is international politics. This is not charity. I mean, Italy and Germany were not sitting to do charity. They wanted something in return because they saw in Subhasbos a potential weapon to be used against the British. They were fighting against. So, but it didn't come easy. Subhas had to impress the uh, ambassador, the uh, in, in the German embassy, in the Italian embassy. He had to impress the foreign office. The very next day, the day after he reaches Berlin, the very next day he meets the foreign official, foreign office officials, the officers there gives his plan. They are impressed with his plan. Very soon he meets the uh, German foreign minister, Ribbentrop. He gives his plan. Ribbentrop is impressed. So every step he goes, he is so uh, well articulated uh, plan. He has developed it. By the time he is there, he knows exactly what he wants to do. So uh, he didn't go there for ideological uh, inclination. There was no ideological inclination towards the Axis bloc. He rather, when Germany attacked Russia, he was extremely scathing in his criticism. And in and, and he tells Ribbentrop on, on his face in the strongest language possible that you have done a blunder. The thing that you have done it will turn India more against you. They will look at you as aggressors. Russia, Indian people are sympathetic towards Russia was the Soviet Union. And now you have attacked Soviet Union. Forget the war strategy part of it, the, the relevance of war strategy in it. Politically, this is a losing game. You have done a blunder. So he tells them on his face. I mean, nobody, if he was a psycho fan, he could have got everything, I mean, uh, much more than what he expected. But again, because he was nobody's man, he was his own man and had his own principles and thoughts and ideas in its own place and would stick to it. The German government, the Italian government, they saw his value and they gave them every possible help. Same thing happens when he reaches Japan. The Prime Minister Tojo refuses to meet him. Uh, by that time, he had uh, met the chief of armed forces. Uh, he had met the foreign minister. He had met the defense minister. And they were so impressed by him, they uh, cajoled Tojo to meet him for a brief few minutes. So Suvas Bose gets a few minutes to meet Tojo. And Tojo is not interested, just not interested. And he has had the bitter experience of the first INA breaking up, uh, uh, Rashbiari Bose and Mohan Singh falling out. And that bitter experience he has his mind and he doesn't want to deal with another Indian. So Suvasbos gets a few minutes and within those few minutes, he comes out with a promise of unconditional help from the Japanese government. Tojo is so bold over within those few minutes, 
he calls was was most uh, day later with his entire cabinet to discuss the plan for india's liberation so that was the caliber of the man he was he didn't have to be anybody's uh, chamcha anybody's psychopath anybody's he didn't have to he didn't have to belong to any camp because all his dream all his passion was india it was india first india only and india's liberation and reconstruction of india nothing else mattered no political ideology mattered no individual mattered nothing else mattered so what was this plan that he articulated to ribbentrop and the nazi leadership and also to tojo and and what value did they see in him the first value was that uh, the that a leader like suhas bose had uh, come to seek their help so publicity value the great publicity value that the britishers there is a top level leader from india who is in berlin and talking to the entire world telling what the britishers are doing in india and that india wants independence publicity value and suhas bose's plan was uh, it was a very uh, detailed plan but uh, there were a few components which uh, i will tell you is first he wanted a, to create a base build up a base in afghanistan with the help of the german army and uh, the technically technologically superior uh, equipment and radio and tanks and everything and he wanted to uh, bring in the tribal forces in the north west frontier province and to be ready as a launching pad pad to attack india so the second part of it was to recruit the prisoners indian prisoners of war and create the army in europe in the heart of europe which would come down with the german army and uh, uh, invade the british empire the british india the british raj through the northwest frontier province then the third was to uh, i mean immediate goal was to set up a government in exile and and a declaration from the axis powers uh, regarding india's independence that india should be free and the british government needs to go so these were the broad things that and of course there was a, a huge plan a very meticulous and uh, intricate plan of broadcasting because broadcasting played a very very big role in uh, reaching out to the indian masses and creating discontent at the ground level and it worked it worked fabulously uh, and so when suhas was realized that the germans were dragging their feet italians were relatively more helpful more proactive but hitler was dragging his feet and he's his uh, uh, inner love for the british his admiration secret admiration for the british he did not want to see the british empire go in the heart of his heart so he was dragging his feet but he was giving at the same time all facilities that suvas required but the crucial things that declaration of independence and the giving uh, that technological support that armed forces support for suvas to bring the prisoners of war into india he would he would not agree to that he said that the war is going on it's too far away we are engaged in, in the russian front so we cannot uh, look at that angle better you go to uh, southeast asia japan has uh, uh, <coughs> done pearl harbor they have taken over singapore and uh, southeast asia is under japanese control you will be very close to your home 
and uh, launch your campaign from uh, Southeast Asia. So, and, and, and obviously he made sure that Subhash was safely and securely transported to Southeast Asia. And uh, when he came to Japan, he gave Tojo similar plan that first thing, the first INA that was set up by Mohan Singh and Rashwari Bose was looked upon as a subordinate army. First thing Subhas had to do was to get the status of an allied army. That we are not subordinates, we are independent, we are allied army, so give us the status of allied army. Second thing, he wanted to set up a free government of India in exile. And that was an unthinkable demand, but Tojo agreed to it. Third demand was even more ridiculous given that setting. He said, I want Indian territory, which is under Japanese control. So give me the Andaman Islands. And the Japanese Navy leadership was mad. They were, what is this man talking about? But with his uh, command over the political leadership in Tokyo, he extracted that also. So the Tojo agreed to give him uh, at least the titular control of uh, the Andaman Islands. And later on, when the uh, people were uh, leaving Burma and evacuating into India, leaving their, behind their property, the land. So whatever belonged to Indians, whichever land and property and everything belonged to Indians, those were given to the provisional government of the Azadin for uh, administering. So these were the things that he was doing. And when the INA fought with the Japanese army, they didn't fight as subordinate army. So was had to fight with at every level with the zonal regional commanders of the army, Japanese army. That the um, India, the INA would be given the status of the Allied Army. Uh, the Indian soldiers in the INA would be the first one to set foot on Indian soil. And as soon as some Indian territory is conquered, the INA, uh, the, 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 the officer corps, which was following the INA soldiers, they would set up the administration there. And the Japanese would be only as guards and soldiers. They would have no say in the administration of the territory. So these are these were very, very bold demands. And it talks a lot about the caliber of the man that he could, under those adverse circumstances, he was, I mean, the Japanese government had didn't have to listen to him. But they did. They gave him everything that he wanted. He wanted to set up a bank, the bank of Azadin government. The Japanese government agreed. After grumbling and grudge, he agreed. Then he said, because we are an independent government, I am not going to deal uh, with your uh, local liaison agency. I want a proper diplomatic service. You set up, your, you, you uh, send uh, an ambassador. You appoint an ambassador to my government. So the Japanese government had to appoint an ambassador to the, to meet with the Azadin government. So it was uh, he was treated as equal, and this something uh, something came uh, out very nicely in an intercepted telegram, which uh, uh, the Japanese ambassador in Berlin sent to Tokyo after Subhas had left and come and set up his Azadin government and the INA. So Hitler met the Japanese ambassador uh, Oshima in Berlin and asked, how are things going? How is Bose doing in Japan and how is the Japanese government treating him and all? So Oshima said in clear terms, and these were the exact words, 
that he has been given a blank check by the Japanese government. So that says everything. Whoever says that Japan would have come and captured India and India would have been held, nothing like that was even in the horizon. Japan had no plan for attacking India. Now, as far as I know, uh, Subhash Chandra Bose did not have any formal military training. So how did he become the supreme commander of the Azad Hind Forge? I mean, without training. And he did ex- exceedingly, exceedingly well as the leader. So how did a man without any formal training become the commander and a successful, reasonably successful commander? Well, he did get the training when he was mm-hmm. in Scottish Church College for a year. Uh, but that was a short training for a year. But he did get a training in the in the in the. Okay. Uh, at that time, what happened is that the Bengal regiment was being raised uh, 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 towards the end of the First World War, and Subhas wanted to join the army, that Bengal regiment. But uh, he was rejected because of his poor eyesight. So he went and joined the India Defence Forces of the the university uh, uh, branch of the India Defence Forces, and took proper military training for one year. And uh, that's, that was his training. But again, he was a thinker. He was a military thinker by, by nature, inherently. He would read, he would, uh, as I said, that he was probably the most erudite of all Indian political leaders of his time. The, the expanse of his knowledge, information, reading, nobody came close. Probably Nehru, yes, but not even in that manner. The depth and the breadth of his knowledge and information he was constantly voraciously reading his i mean whenever he was sent to jail uh, i mean there were instances where uh, in in the central legislative assembly questions were being raised because some books he had asked for were refused so he would send lists huge long lists to his brother to the libraries that send me these books i am uh, i am going to read i am going to study so he methodically he used to study so obviously, I mean, part of a lot of it was theoretical, and he uh, was a quick learner also, a very intelligent person. So he was a quick learner also. So he had people around him who could uh, give him the ideas. The uh, I mean, whatever he could not learn from training. Obviously, he as military strategy and everything, he uh, gave a lot of uh, independence and autonomy to his commanders. So. Uh, it was not that he was a military dictator that he would decide the strategy and tell them what to do. He would listen to them. He would take inputs from them. And uh, that, as, as a person, he was extremely democratic. And uh, he would take feedback. He would take criticism and uh, develop the plan along with them. So it was not that he was doing it alone. And if uh, he had won the war against the British and he had actually liberated India. What was his plan for India? Was he, uh, like you said, he believed in democracy, but people alleged that he was somebody with uh, dictatorial tendencies. He wanted 20 years of dictatorship for India. So what was his vision for India? Had he succeeded? See, this uh, 20 years of dictatorship for India is bunkum. It's 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 a, it's a mm-hmm. propaganda by uh, intellectuals aligned with the Congress party. Because uh, there is no, uh, absolutely no source which says that he wanted a dictatorship for India for 20 years. Yes, he wanted a very strong uh, central government. And he wanted, uh, again, for that discipline. His his thing was there were too many fissiparous, separatist uh, 
tendencies in India. So if the entire India, undivided India, was to be kept together, so there were separatist parties like the uh, Muslim League. There were the uh, princes who wanted their own kingdom to retain the kingdom and keep with themselves, uh, separate from India. If they were to be kept together, if the, as I said, the utter poverty, the abject poverty, the lack of education, of infrastructure, industry, uh, all these had to be taken care of. His uh, way of looking at it was a very strong central government uh, for a few years, which would be extremely uh, disciplinarian in nature and uh, would uh, probably would mean as one party rule. One party rule, in the, he explained that one party rule, it would be the Congress party. But Congress, since Congress had different uh, ideologies, different strands of thought, it would not be like the Communist Party dictatorship. So because uh, and because there would be internal democracy within the Congress Party, so if the decisions would be made in, in 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 consultation, in collaboration, and not by one single person. But uh, the, with the provinces, over the provinces, the central government would have uh, much more power for the uh, probably for the first uh, decade or so, or fifteen years or so. Never specified the time period, but the first few years, it would be a very strong central government. But at the same time, he also uh, outlined uh, a very strong uh, state-driven, state-controlled, uh, heavy industry development and uh, cultural autonomy, regional autonomy, provincial autonomy, large degrees of autonomy for them. Nobody's freedom would be trampled upon. A dictator doesn't give these assurances that nobody's freedom would be trampled upon. Uh, every, every region, every ethnicity, every culture would have their own space and develop and freely develop. So that would be there. And uh, obviously, a military, a strong military would be a very central component of his scheme. And he foresaw, his, he foresaw the INA as the core of the uh, Free India's army that would drive. The British Indian army uh, had to be disbanded and INA would be the core and from there it would be built up. Exactly the opposite of what happened in Nehru in India. The INA were shooed out and the British Indian Army continued. So uh, that, that, I mean, in, in a nutshell, those were his views. And uh, it, uh, the social evils, the caste uh, and all those things had to go. They just had to be abolished. Uh, scientific approach, scientific uh, point of view, scientific uh, view of the life, about social life. It had to be scientific, though old, obscure, uh, super uh, superstition-driven practices had to go. And uh, divisions would have to be broken down. India would have to, be a, have to be a society where everybody is equal. And I mean, given the nature of his personality, when Subhasbo said something, he meant it. Rather than words written on paper or words spoken, if he ever said those, unlike his contemporaries, he would make sure that those were would be implemented. And 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 I have a feeling; it is my sense, uh, Vijit, that uh, probably one of the reasons why 
he was very carefully marginalized and sidelined was that uh, the Gandhian leadership, the Nehruvian leadership uh, or the post-Gandhian leadership had somewhere a fear that he might, if he comes back and takes over power, he might turn into a kind of a Robespierre in the Indian scenario. And that would put them in danger. So that kind of uh, fear was there. Unjustified, I would say, but probably that was because there was there would be no room for uh, backroom compromises and, you know, kind of Nehru being, uh, Nehru's policies being decided or influenced by someone like Edwina or that hunger for uh, getting the power that we have to by hook or crook, we have to get the power in our hands. So the white sides being replaced by brown sides, all these things would have been done very, very differently had he come back. And that fear that he would come back was very real, was very real. And that is the reason why the government kept on snooping till the 1970s. Right. So my final question for today is, what do you see as the legacy of Subhashchandra Bose, the true, the true legacy. The true legacy, in in, in uh, I would say there are a few aspects of it, few strands of it. Firstly, as uh, an identity as an Indian, uh, as nobody represents Indian nationalism uh, the way he does, or as good as he does. Probably he's the finest uh, example of Indian nationalism the best of Indian nationalism and, and as an icon today, uh, he stands tallest. And in, 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 in every, every uh, meaning of that term, from India's development to sense of identity to uh, uh, geopolitics, international relations, uh, development of uh, India's security system, uh, the place of the army, the respect for the army, military thinking, strategic thinking, uh, taking forward scientific education uh, and, and, and uplifting every strata of our society. We talk a lot. We talk a lot. I mean, it's a matter of shame that from 1950 after, and in 2022, we are still talking and talking and talking about poverty alleviation, improvement of agriculture, and we still don't have the solutions. I mean, so we here we have one person who had the foresight. I mean, in 1938, in his presidential uh, address, he is talking about uh, improving agricultural yield, crop yield. He is talking about removal of uh, farmers' debt. I mean, we are still talking of those after 70, uh, what, 38, and this is nearly 100 years, 84 years. We are still talking of the same problems. I mean, that man could see those problems and had the uh, vision to take tackle those problems then. We, we are still grappling. We are still struggling. The other thing which uh, I think is legacy is, and something that we have forgotten, is uh, the politics of, uh, the language of politics. And here there are two very starkly different schools here. The Gandhian school, the language of politics, which is of the, the Gandhian school, and the language of politics of Subhas Bose. 
the Gandhian school's language of politics is uh, uh, marked uh, primarily by circumlocution, beating around the bush. It's not only neither here nor there, it is both here and there. So you can change, shift your position very conveniently according to the situation. You can defend yourself wherever you are, whatever you do. People will never be able to understand what exactly you mean, what exactly you say, whether you mean what you say or what you uh, say is what you are going to do. Suvas Bose's language of politics was very straightforward and honest, clear cut to the point. So if he says that these are the things that we need to do, so he would not show overt friendliness to the British. That, that I am your friend, let us sit and talk, let us see how we can get independence. He is very clear that you are our enemy. Gandhian school is world peace world citizens, global citizens universal citizens We have to transform humanity. So why don't we keep talking? Let's keep talking. Let the discourse go on. And then when the time comes, when we feel that everybody is ready, we are ready to take over and you are ready to leave, then we can work out a convenient uh, mechanism. Very, very different language of politics, both hands. So I, I feel that in the current uh, generation, in the current uh, scenario of politics, that Suhas Bose's school, his language of politics needs to be brought back. We, we have seen too much of Nehruvian and Gandhian circumlocution, which practically means nothing. All right. Uh, thank you very much for a very interesting discussion. And congratulations once again on publishing the book. Uh, the link thank is in you. the description. So I will urge all the viewers to, to go ahead and uh, purchase the book. And I will do the same thing. So thank you so much, Chandrachur. Very nice talking to you. First time on the podcast. Thank you. Let's, let's do, this again, do this again. Thank you, Abhijit. Same here. It was great talking to you. We'll catch up again. Surely, certainly. Nothing. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. Good night. Good, Good night. Jai Hind. Jai Hind. Jai Hind.